The new year is here, and for many of you, that means new personal goals and maybe just maybe even a few house projects. If your furnace is on that list of projects to tackle, let Aquarius Home Services help you. Right now, they're offering $98 off any furnace repair. That's $98 off of any furnace repair. Their heating and cooling technicians are experts at troubleshooting and repairing any and all types of furnace-related issues. Start the new year off right and stay warm and cozy this winter season. Aquarius believes in earning the right to be recommended, and I recommend them. They're just a click away at AquariusHomeServices.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Do North Outdoors podcast. Natalie Dillon here with Travis Frank. I feel like we can start off every single podcast the same way right now. Welcome to another freezing cold day in Minnesota. Frozen. Is it Groundhog's Day today? No, but it might. It feels like it because it's been so cold yeah. up here. It's, I believe, negative 12 this morning when I got in the truck. It's Yeah, yeah. it's been delightful. You're just loving this, aren't you? <laughs> We've got, I mean, it's a little tough. This is the type of weather that like it's hard to do a ton outside without things like breaking on you. Yeah. Uh, like you, I feel like you almost need like ski goggles at this point to be outside. Um, but... We got the sunshine out. Is it so. cool? Is it too cold to jump in a lake today? Well, I'm going tomorrow morning, so we'll find out. I've been in the like the cold tubs yeah. the last few days. Um, it's but even that, like we they like they use a hose to fill them up, and the hose will like stop working, so they'll be like half full. So it's yeah. it's getting there. But have you Brutal been outside cold. much? Yeah, a little bit. Uh, lakes have finally started to firm up a little bit, but some of the comments from people that have tried you know, getting off road the last two weeks in Minnesota in particular, we have all that snow on top of the ice. And then underneath that snow in places, there were six, eight, 10, 12 inches of water. Mm -hmm. And then you have ice underneath that. So trying to get anywhere off road has been almost impossible. A lot of the roads then flooded out. So people were driving vehicles and there were water, water was coming into the doors. That's how much water on the roads. It was a nightmare out on the lake. I put my fish house on a spot that, um, the, that was kind of like a highly traveled area and packed down. So then it was up higher. It wasn't in the soft stuff. And I'm like, I'm just going to let it freeze. Because I saw the extended forecast. You get people out there panicking, trying to get their houses Mm -hmm. off. I'm like, just don't drive. Let everything freeze up. So right now, um, I drove out to the house this morning to get fishing pole for my son. My dad's taking him and my nephew out fishing, and I needed to get to the house, which is only a half-mile drive. It took me 30 minutes to drive to the fish house and back to shore. Half-mile from the access, but that's how bumpy it is out there. And if I went any faster, I would have parts of my vehicle laying on the ice like some other fools out there have done. It is disgusting out there right now. And it looks like you're driving across Mars or the moon or something. Anyway. Well, stay safe out there, everyone. Um, And as much as I know that everyone would love to hear us chatting. It's not about us. It's It's not not about about us. We've got a special guest on the line today. Somebody that both Travis and I are excited to talk to. And we know that those listening will be excited to hear his story too. Roy Leva is something of a fishing legend, lifelong multi-species angler, multiple world record holder. At You've talked points. him up I've so ta- much I, that I can't wait about, for the conversation. Roy on the podcast yeah. for a long time. We have him here. Roy, welcome to the show. How are you doing Hi. today? <laughs> How's it going? We're good. I have to ask, awesome. where are you? Where are you calling in from? Where are you right now? So I'm in Massachusetts. Um, I'm living here now. 
Um, I'm a little jealous of your ice. Um, I will say that it's been a fairly warm winter here, so it's been kind of tough to to get on hard water. Well, we've seen you have been out on the ice. And in fact, I have to say, we were just looking at a video right before we called you of some of the micro ice fishing you were doing. <laughs> is that is that right in Boston? Uh, nope, that's in Western Mass. Um, that's really the only place in the state that you can find some ice has been like the Western part of the state. So what we call the Berkshires, which is kind of like close to New York. Um, other than that, we haven't had much. So... The area where I live, which is, it's, it's considered Western Mass, but it's just past the middle, um, has been really warm and it's all been either open water or just capped off enough where you can't get to it. So I was going a little crazy and uh, I found a little tiny backwater off the river that I live on that had a bunch of little, you know, shiners and dace, all these little micros. And uh, so I, I made up a tip up to... <laughs> so I can target them and get some ice fishing in at least. Well, it, it's it's very it makes sense when I watch the video, but it's hilarious because you you rigged up a tip up with a zip tie. That was the <laughs> and then put on uh, a little flag on top of that, but to somebody that can't see the video right now, can you explain micro ice fishing to them because I've never heard of it before. Well, it's new. I think I'm the first person to do it. <laughs> I think you might be. Yes. <laughs> So, so basically what I did was I made a four inch tip up. Um, I made the spool out of a sewing, sewing spool, like a sewing machine spool. Um, the flag and, and, and tripper is made out of wire and a zip, zip tie. Um, and, and that's pretty much it. And it was just, it served the purpose that this backwater was only like, I mean, when I found it, the backwater had probably an inch of ice and by the time I had made the tip up and gone back there, uh, there was, you know, the ice was kind of going. I had to lay a plank across it and stand on the plank to drill my holes with a one and a half inch bit. Because um, that's the size of the hole that would hold the, the ice tip and I'd fish through. Uh, so basically, it's it, it allowed me to, to target some really small fish um, through the ice, which I don't think anything anyone's ever really done. No, I've never seen anything like it before. You had this video of you looking at this tiny stream that was maybe like six inches deep and a big school of minnows took off from shore, which is a common right. sight when you're at the boat launch and you're backing in, you see all these little minnows, but you were targeting these minnows. How in the world did you get a hook inside of one of their mouths? <laughs> so I'm using a Tenego hook. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a Japanese style hook. Um, made from, you know, some of the top companies, uh, owner Gamagatsu has, you know, their take on them, um, as well as others. And it's a really small, uh, tip on the hook. The hook itself is probably about an eighth inch long, but the tip of it, the actual part that they put in their mouth is really small. And that is that it's just, it's used for micro fishing, um, for species, for guys who, who, who chase species, uh, there's a point where you start to catch all these big fish, right? And micros make up a huge amount of fish that don't, uh, let me see, I'm trying to explain micro. So micro is anything that doesn't reach a pound or that's its cap off. It doesn't grow more than a pound. So anything under a pound that 
realistically doesn't grow that big is a microfish. So stuff like shiners, darters, um, dace, uh, some chubs, uh, those are all micros. So in order to, to gain a species count, you have to start targeting some of these tiny little fish that don't grow very big. So Roy, we'll, we'll talk about this as we go, but I, I know from, you know, knowing you and following along your journey, you've caught a ton of species, but including a lot of really big fish, a lot of bucket list fish. So while we're talking about micro fishing, you know, for those listening at home that maybe find themselves catching small fish, but not intentionally, um, what is it about this micro fishing? Is it just your way of catching more species or do you actually, is there something specific about the hunt of these really small fish that you enjoy? So, all right, a little backstory on how I got into this. Um, you know, as a child, I was fascinated with some of the, the picture books that, you know, you see um, as far as fish go. And, you know, as, as I fished and I caught things around me, I always dreamed of fishing other places that had all these like colorful fish and just different types of fish. So as I grew into myself and, you know, just became more and more of an angler, um, I started to, to, to really go down this rabbit hole of trophy hunting, right? Um, I wanted to catch some of these, the biggest fish in my waters, um, just more to, to prove that I could do this. And in that journey, I found, you know, that, that it mattered how well you knew the ecosystem. So in order to figure out where some of these big fish were feeding or in certain times of the year, I had to know what they were feeding on. So I started to like dabble in trying to figure out what was there for, for bait fish and, you know, insects and so on. And I came across um, micro fishing which is, comes from, from the Japanese. Um, there's a lot of fish that they target that are really, really tiny. Um, and they're kind of, you know, ahead of all this um, as far as technique and technology and, and, and the whole works. And that kind of just opened up a world for me for species hunting because, to be honest, at the beginning, it was just trying to figure out, you know, what was in the lakes and rivers that I fished. So talk to, oh, are you going to say something, Travis? Well, I have, I have like 500 questions right now. I need to choose one of them. Maybe we should go back just real briefly and, and get into your backstory. Um, I, the micro fishing is incredible. If you go to off the hook fishing, all one word on Instagram, you can watch some of your videos. It's, it's hilarious. Actually, these little tiny, uh, uh, tip ups that you've built and you can watch these little minnows swimming in there. But I think for people to understand this conversation, they need to know a little bit more about you. Where did you grow up and how did you get into fishing? And then maybe explain kind of your journey through the fishing world. All right. So, I mean, I, I'm, I'm Cuban by descent. I'm, I'm born and raised in Boston, Massachusetts, um, but I'm Cuban by descent. So I, I, I want to say it's in my blood, right? My, my dad fished, uh, almost all my family, elderly family members, uncles and fished in Cuba for a living, um, before they came to the States. So everything we did, um, for me growing up and pretty much throughout, you know, my whole life until my dad passed a few years ago, uh, our leisurely time was fishing. Um, so I just, I don't know. I, I, I kind of took a love to it at a really early age 
and I was good at it. It was just one of those things that I was really good. I was from the inner city. So, you know, it wasn't anything that anybody around me really did. Uh, so when we did it, we did it as a family. And at some point, you know, we, we, we fished for food. That's, that's, that's what my parents, my family did was we went and we caught fish and then we came home and we ate it. Um, which was fine. I just, at some point I decided that I wanted to break away from that and kind of just, you know, I was seeing TV shows and reading articles in magazines like the In fisherman and stuff. And, you know, Jerry McKenna and Doug Hannon and all these great fishermen on TV. And, you know, there's all these great techniques and I just wanted to expand. And as I got older, um, I started to, to play with those, including my own. Um, we didn't, we weren't poor, but we didn't have a lot of money. So I had to be resourceful to what I had. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm building lures out of, you know, a big pen, um, which I've caught many big fish on big pens, uh, light bulbs, those Christmas light bulbs, those big mm -hmm. old knobby Christmas light bulbs in colors. Those make great poppers. <laughs> um, I've caught, I don't know how many bass with those. Uh, it was just this, you know, fundamental of, of, of trying to take what I had and, and, and go out and use it to, to catch fish and learn all these techniques. And as time went on, I just started making a name for myself. And then I got into fly fishing when I was about, actually, my brother came home from Japan. He was in the service and he was, he was stationed in Japan and he came home with a fly tying kit and he taught me how to tie some flies and then he left it when he went back and I started to play around with it. And by the age of 14, I was selling flies uh, to local tackle shops and people down by the water. So I was basically hustling them. Where were, where were you at? Where were you living at this time? Boston. So I'm in the okay. inner city. I'm, I, it's always, I, I lived in Boston until I was, I don't know, 24, 25. So... so Roy, I think it's interesting, you know, you say you grew up in Boston again. We're not talking about, you know, outside the city. I've, you know, seen your old neighborhood definitely in what some might call, you know, the concrete jungle. So in a certain sense, it's, you know, not necessarily the um, the geographic location people would expect somebody to become a fisherman in. But talk to us about the water that you did have in the area, both, you know, the saltwater, the Cape, and then also some of the city lakes that you grew up fishing. So in the city, we've got the Charles River, obviously, that, that dirty water that we love, um, which is a great place. I mean, it, it, it has seen its lows and it's seen its highs. And right now, it's, it's actually on, it, on the high end. But, you know, between the Charles River, uh, Jamaica Pond, which was right in Boston, Brookline Reservoir, the Muddy River, which comes off of the Charles River, um, well, comes out of the ponds and feeds into the Charles um, I mean, sorry, out of Jamaica Pond and feeds into the Charles. All these places were kind of like my backyard. And we're talking about a lot of, you know, bass, pickerel, carp, um, channel cats, white cats. Uh, later on, smallmouth would become one of those. They were stocked at some point as I grew up. And now there's smallmouth all throughout the Charles. Uh, crappie, uh, yellow perch. Um, and then you have some of the saltwater fish that do enter the river, uh, like striped bass. 
which takes me into, you know, Boston Harbor. Um, and Boston Harbor is really, you know, the fisheries that it's always been known for is, is cod, pollock, mackerel, uh, flounder, and, uh, and striped bass, as well as like smelt and some other ones. But that was, that was the playground I had. Um, and like you said, not, I didn't really know anyone that fished. Like most of the people that fished with me growing up were because they were my friends. Other than that, most of them would never have fished. They all, you know, played basketball and football and baseball, but I didn't do that. I, I, I fished. I was kind of the odd kid. Everybody thought I was the odd kid, hmm. but I don't know. At, I what, didn't think- at, at what point in your journey did chasing records enter the scene? So I want to say, uh, Somewhere in the 80s, um, I used to fish, you know, the 80s, I know it doesn't sound like very long ago, but it was, we still had a lot of racist, racism in this country. And I was this Hispanic little boy in a world that was populated by mostly white men. And for some reason, all these places I would fish, I would get dismissed all the time. Like people, you know, I, I, I I was accepted as part of the of the group that fished these waters because we're locals, right? Everybody knows everybody that's always there. But at the same time, when it came time for me to tell my stories of what I catch, I was dismissed. Nobody thought, you know, yeah, you didn't catch 15 bass today. Like I barely caught one, you know? And it just it it I don't know, it fueled something inside me to try to prove something. And as I got older and those, I had the chance to do so, I, I you know, I, I, I took in part in it. Um, that's how I ended up. I, I had a website called Off the Hook Fishing. That's where the Instagram account comes from. And that was kind of just uh, a blog kind of website with photos and videos and info on my journey to catch all these trophies in Massachusetts. Um, as well as, you know, world records, uh, because I wanted to prove to people like, here it is, like, I'm, I'm showing it to you, you know, back then there was maybe MySpace and YouTube, but there was nothing else. And I wanted to be like, this is legit. Like you can't question what I'm catching. Was there a Uh, certain moment or record or, you know, a series of catches that you feel like really put you on the map or helped you make a name for yourself? Was there like, is there one moment that you can point to? Yeah, I so I, I I had the um so there's there's two world record holders there's IGFA and then there's the National Freshwater Hall of Fame right which is in Wisconsin right mm-hmm. so they actually recognized koi now I didn't know this at the time this is this is where we're talking about my first world record um, my mother wanted a koi pond in the backyard. Uh, at this time, we were living just outside of Boston in a suburb called High Park, um, my parents' first house, and we built her a koi pond. And uh, I was like, you know what? I can go catch you koi. Like, I see them all the time. So it had been a really rainy spring, a lot of runoff, water had been really dirty, and I went to Jamaica Pond because it had some really pretty colored koi that, were, that I'd seen before. And, um, I went down and I'm fishing bread off a peanut butter and jelly sandwich that I had for lunch. (laughs) 
And all I could see is about six inches of orange in this really dark, muddy water. And uh, I've got a trout rod. I'm just looking for, you know, small koi, nothing humongous. So I throw my bread out in front of this koi and I watch it swim over and puts his head down um, and it takes off. And I set the hook and the drag starts peeling. And my rod, my little ultralights like buckled over. And I'm like, what did I just hook into? Because mm-hmm. all I could see was like six or eight inches of, of orange. Um, and it happened to be this 20 and a half pound koi. Oh. Wow. So, and this like a football, it's got this big, huge belly. Like it, it's just, it's black and orange and really cool looking. So to make a pond the way it's set up, it's got this like road that runs around it that people jog and walk and so on. And uh, usually when you hook a good fish and you fight it for a while, you get a crowd. Mm -hmm. So I've got a crowd of people and they're chanting on and, you know, hollering and clapping. And I get this thing in and someone's like, do you want a picture of it? There's somebody there with a camera and they're like, you want a picture of it? And I'm like, yeah. And he takes a couple of photos of it and I fill up the live well and I put in a live well at this time. I had a, a vehicle that was set for fishing that nothing else, but big, huge four by four van that was rigged for fishing. So I had a 120 gallon tank in it to keep anything I wanted alive. So I put the koi in the, in the tank um, to bring home. And this person takes my email and, uh, he sends me the photos and I posted them that night to a few forums and automatically I got like people telling me, you know, the world record's 13 pounds. The world <laughs> record's 13 pounds. Like, so no question. Way bigger than 13 yeah. pounds. And I'm like, world record for koi? I'm like, that's weird. So I look into it. Um, I joined National Freshwater Hall of Fame um, and, you know, got the paperwork. The next day I set out, I got it weighed in. Uh, it was 20 pounds, eight ounces. Filled was all it living in your mom's little koi pond at this time? No, not anymore, but it was for the longest time. We had them for like six years. <laughs> um, and then my parents went to Cuba. Well, they went to Mexico and then they took a, a cruise. They were gone for like a month. And uh, at some point it got really hot during the summer and, and the pump died and we lost no like all the fish in there. And that was one of them. So I have to say, for those listening at home, I've had the opportunity to fish with Roy out in, we were in Jamaica Pond, right, Roy? Yeah. So we were, yeah, we were filming a video a couple years back. And I don't even know, Roy, if you'll remember this because it's something that you're more used to than me, but we did see one of those orange koi living in, yeah, swimming around the lake. And we didn't, you know, obviously didn't catch it, but seeing a giant koi fish swim around in just a city lake. And for those listening that are from the Twin Cities, it feels a lot like the Minneapolis chain of lakes there. Mm-hmm. It's the craziest thing. And I can't imagine, I think the one that we saw was probably, you know, a fraction of the size of, of your initial world record, oh, but. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And, and I mean, it's been beaten a few times now. Mm-hmm. It wasn't, you know, I, I the funny thing is like three weeks later, I ended up catching what would have been the world record goldfish. But people had chanted Roy the Koi Boy so many times by then that I released it. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to be known as the as the goldfish guy. That was for sure. <laughs> so that was it. Was that your first world record? That was my first world record. How many? That wo- opened my eyes. I, you know, once you get that record book and you start looking, flipping through it, and you start looking at all these line classes and stuff, and you know these little like aha moments come into your brain, and you're like, whoa, I can, I can definitely do that. Like that's possible. I've caught fish that big. 
Um, and that just, it became my pursuit for, for a while. Um, you know, I, I can't say that it didn't help getting my name out there. Cause it definitely did. People react to big fish a lot more than they do to small fish. Mm -hmm. uh, even though nowadays, you know, micro fishing is becoming huge. And I think that, you know, one thing that I've learned in social media is in fishing, 10% of the angler is going to catch 90% of the fish, right? I mean, that, that holds true, right? Yep. Mm -hmm. Or else we wouldn't have any fish at all in the world. Some people are really, really good at it. And some people are okay. Now, the majority just wants to go out and fish. They just want to have a good time. So at some point I realized that, you know, not everybody's going to catch world records and not everybody's going to catch, you know, 10, 15 pound largemouth, but the majority are going to catch two, three, four pound largemouth. And that's fine. And that's what they want to know. And that's what they want to learn. And that's what, you know, kind of pushes to the masses. So it goes both ways, but, you know, without, without large fish, it's, it's hard to get, to gain an audience. How many world records have you caught in your lifetime and how long have you been chasing them? So I want to say, I think I had like 15 or 16 when I decided to stop. Does that include the species count? Yeah. You I mean, that for a while too, right? They'd all, they'd all, yeah. They'd all be in the species count, but I, most of my species, if I can, if I, you know, most of my world records are things that I, I target consistently. Um, and I try that with everything, even the micro stuff. Like, like I want to be able to catch whatever that species is any time of the year, whenever I want. Um, just cause I get bored and sometimes I want to do something different or fish for something different. And I want to be able to target it. That's, that's like, you know, for me, that was, that was the Holy grail of, of that whole moment that I was talking about earlier, trying to dissect the ecosystem was that, you know, this is how I did, right? So Massachusetts, and I know a lot of other states do this, give citations or awards for a certain size that meet a fish that meets a certain size, right? By the state's fishery. So in Massachusetts, they call them pins. They give you a bronze pin. If you catch a, you know, say a seven pound largemouth bass, it might be smaller now, but it used to be seven pounds, seven pound largemouth bass. If you have it weighed on a, on a, on a certified scale and fill out the affidavit or you can do a catch and release, which is measured. Um, you send it in and the state awards you a bronze pin. The biggest species of the biggest fish of the 22 species that Massachusetts recognizes gets a gold pin in a war and a plaque at an award ceremony, a, a award ceremony uh, in the wintertime at one of the fishing shows. So, I started to do that while I was trophy hunting for all these, you know, different trophies and world records in my home state. And what I would do is I would pick four species every year and I would target those four species all four seasons. And then the following year I would take, I would start another four species, but I would take my findings from the year before when I caught the biggest or the most fish of those prior four species. Am I losing you yet? <laughs> We're here. No, we got you. All right. Yeah. All right. I'm saying just like mind-wise, right? Yeah, no. Yeah, I follow. So I, would, I would introduce those four into there. So if there was a week in May, let's say, where 
I was, I knew I would get, you know, some big smallmouth bass doing this. Then I would introduce that into the following year in between those new four species and so on and so on until I covered them all. And then I'd go back and check to make sure that, you know, that what I had discovered and the techniques and all that worked. So that's always been my thing. It's just, I love being able to say, Hey, I want to go catch a big, large mouth bass today, or I want to go catch pike today and do that successfully without having to be like, Oh, it's just a bad day. Like I want to know what they're doing, when they're doing, how they're doing it all the time. So it's been a lifelong, obviously journey, um, which I'm still learning at and I'll probably die learning at, but you know, it, it, I'm at a comfortable state now that I don't, I don't, I can't say I don't get skunked, but I don't get skunked very often because if something doesn't work out, I know there's something else that will. And that's just, I mean, for me, that's fishing, right? Go out and you enjoy it. Uh, whether you catch fish or not, but you enjoy it. And catching fish, obviously, is the most enjoying. So I'm I don't a, know if that. As, as a fellow angler here and a fishing guide for 20 plus years in Minnesota, um, I like to fish for a variety of species. I tell people all the time that you can learn a lot about your favorite target species by fishing lakes, rivers, streams, whatever, for other species of fish and understanding the entire ecosystem. It will make you a better angler. And also that you can put together seasonal patterns that tend to play out pretty much every year. And it really helps you to like make mental notes, write down notes, uh, understand this is what that species of fish, whether it's a walleye, a muskie, a smallmouth bass, largemouth bass, whatever it might be, most likely they're going to do the exact same thing the next year during the same time period, water temperature, moon phase, all that kind of stuff. So I, I have to imagine that all of your, your, the way your brain is working is kind of similar to mine, that you're paying attention to everything out there. But the fact that you've chased so many species um, over your lifetime, do you feel confident that you could pretty much go anywhere and catch a fish at any time at this point? So far, it's held true. <laughs> yeah. How yeah. many, yeah, how many species are you up to, Roy? So I kind of, I'm, I'm over 500. There's been, there's been a lot of splits over the last few years. Um, so it's, I mean, if I went back and I looked, there's so much, I like, like red breast sunfish got all, uh, long-eared sunfish got all split up. Um, even the bowfin is split up. Now there's two different types of bowfin. Um, so split so meaning there's so what we thought the, was one species is now actually identified as multiple right. species within that. Or, or multiples, species. you know, depending on, on the water that they're from. So DNA testing now has, has given us that. You know, we, we can look at a brook trout and be like, oh, that's a brook trout. But, you know, maybe depending where it's from, it could be its own species. So you've caught 500 different species of fish and you, you have how many world records of those species? Can you uh, remind me again the number there? And then can you list what those world records are? So I've had world records for uh, Atlantic salmon, uh, koi, um, quite a bit of salmon. Uh, let me see. Chain pickerel, yellow perch. Um, there's another one. There's another one I'm trying to think right now. 
I told Roy not to prep Robbie. anything for the podcast. <laughs> and I mean, some of these were line wanted class. to put you on the spot. <laughs> no, some of these are line class world records. So it's mm-hmm. not like, you know, they're not, they're world records, but they're, to me, they're just kind of just a world record, you know? Mm-hmm. And as you know, you, you kind of mentioned when we've talked a little bit about this before, but there was a, a point in time when you decided that chasing down records and even, you know, new species wasn't really what was doing it for you anymore and exciting you as much about fishing. Talk to us a little bit more about that, how you transitioned away from that and really how and why you fish today. So at at one point it just became work. You know I mean? You you get a world record. So this is the, the biggest thing is when you're fishing for a world record, you're fishing at the most pristine time for that fish, right? If all the, all, everything aligns, Right. And you're there because you know that the next few days gives you a chance at it. And then you're having the time of your life and you catch this one fish that's, you know, you know, you're just like, whoa, you just put this on the scale and you're like this, this, this could be a world record. Like if it's not, you know, all tackle, it's definitely line class for the line I'm using. So now you have to stop what you're doing in order to follow the steps that you know, it takes to, to submit the world record. Mm -hmm. If most states don't allow um, transporting, so one, the fish has to die, but now the fish has to die and you don't want it to lose ounces because maybe it's an ounce over or it's exact, you know, maybe you tie it. So the day is pretty much done. That fishery that you were in, you know, chasing these fish is pretty much locked up. It's, it's done. And that, that started to weigh heavy on me because I just, I love catching fish. It wasn't so much the recognition. It was the fact catching these fish. And if a 10 pound, whatever it is, was the world record. And I got a 10 pounder or a 10 one. If I just keep fishing, if I release that fish and keep fishing, what's to say I don't catch an 11 or a 12, you know? And, and that's where, that's where it, it became tough for me. And, you know, it, it just, the more you do it, you know, obviously the, the more you do it and the more that stuff gets out there, the more people want to bring you down. And that was the other part of it. You know, it was always having to fight that battle of, yeah, this is where I caught it. Yeah, that's how I caught it. Like, you know, because people always have speculations. Well, and, and I, it's and, worth it for me. I just want to fish. Part of the, the record uh, to be an official record is stating where that fish came from. And you mentioned like you catch it out of that lake and now that body of water, wherever it is, gets a lot of attention. Did you, have you, did you experience overfishing then because of a certain fish that you registered? And yeah, did- I, I, you know, early on, I wasn't very smart. <laughs> <laughs> None of us um, are. Yeah. You know, because obviously I've got a website, so I'm putting up videos. I'm 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 doing everything, you know, um, just so that I can, you know, that someone can't doubt what I'm doing. Um, so yeah, I I burned a lot of a lot of my waters doing so, and yeah, like I said, ten percent of the fishermen catch ninety percent of the fish. So I wasn't too worried of people getting on the same bite because. Not a lot of people know exactly what to go and do. You can walk into a lake. It's still still massive. I mean, try catching a six-pound bass in a five-acre lake that has multiple of them. It's not easy. You know, it, it's, it, 
it's really not easy, but the pressure is there. And the more pressure you get, the harder the fishing becomes all around. Whether, you know, someone is throwing a shiner under a bobber or a worm or whatever it is, um, you know, that, that pressure hurts, hurts a body of water. And if that's your backyard and the place you love to fish, it just it becomes harder and harder. And you have to keep changing things to, to kind of outsmart and out trick these fish. And it just becomes harder. And not to say that, you know, how many of those fish end up dying and it's just the fishery changes sometimes just because, you know, people keep or don't release correctly or, you know, or, or the fish itself just, you know, it might be an old fish and just doesn't survive catch and release. So that, that also became a big play into it. Can you explain to somebody what process you have to go through to register a fish as a world record? So back then it was, you know, obviously a certified scale. Um, you had to bring it to a biologist. Um, they had to be a witness. You had to, depending on, you know, which, which world record holder, um, you had to give them, you know, first 30 feet or 50 feet of your line. Um, you know, certain knots you used, uh, certain lines that you use, because some lines, you know, some of the lines in the market will say eight pound test on them, but they break it like 12. You know, they're not mm. IFA or, or actual line tests. So if you're looking for like a line test world record, you have to find a line that actually breaks at that. And most of those, you know, will say IGFA approved. Um, so you're checking all that before you're targeting these right, fish. Okay. Right. So it's, it's just one of those things where there's a lot more to it than just, you know, catching a fish and being like, Oh, I got it. Cause now you have to, you have to go through all these steps. You have to submit it. And then you have to see if it's accepted or not. I have to imagine most records out there are caught on accident or people just out fishing and catch this huge fish and like, Oh my goodness. You know? And then their buddy's like, that could be a record. And then they look it up. And so it's, do you know any other people like yourself that are out there or were out there just targeting world records like you were? Oh yeah. There's, there is a ton. There's a ton. If you look at the record books, usually you'll see the same name come up in a lot of species. Um, you know, like within the same species, like you'll see the same name. And a lot of times you see the same guy who breaks his, you know, state record over and over again. Um, there is, there is people out there that, that, you know, do it. Uh, personally, me, Patrick Sabil, um, of, uh, well, he's, it's, 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 uh, trying to think of his new company, but Patrick Sabil, he's got like one, he's got like, almost 2000 species, but two, he's got an array of world records, like, like hundreds. That's insane. Wow. I'm yeah, curious. I mean, with a lot of money that just, they just pay for it. They saw some of the best guides certain time of the year and they just pay for it and they just go and they do it. I'm you curious, know? Roy, if there's any species of fish that, you've targeted that you haven't caught yet that are still on your bucket list. Are there any elusive species out there that you're still chasing? Um, not yet. I can't think of any that I really, really set my heart to now, you know, I'm, at, I'm over 500. So it's like, 
don't get me wrong. There's, um, there's hundreds more to catch, but, or thousands, but I haven't really set my mind to anything yet that I've tried. Um, well, actually, you know what? Let me take that back. Uh, leopard shark. Leopard shark is probably, I have tried for leopard sharks and it didn't work out. I remember we talked about that a couple years ago. So that's still on the list. Yeah. That's, that's next still, for you. Yeah. I got to make a trip to California. Yeah. So in your 500 species, where has this taken you? I mean, I, you obviously don't have that many species in Massachusetts. Where have you, where have you, uh, traveled to fish? Well, I've traveled the whole country. Um, I used to work for Shimano on their experience team. Um, and every year we saw both borders and both coasts. Uh, so in that, you know, running around, um, you have this downtime, you know, because you're, you're living on the road. So your downtime is on the road as well. Um, we were a hundred, 120% travel at the beginning of it. I mean, I'd be out on the road for a month and a half sometimes. So our days off were on the road as well. So whatever state you're in, you know, or hotel you'd stay at or whatever, you know, you kind of just go out and look for whatever that fishery was, you know, because we were traveling, which was hard because we're traveling around with a, with a big Toyota Tundra in a, in a wrap skeeter. Uh, so bass boat. So it's, it's not like you can pull over to the side of the road and, and do whatever you want. But, um, but it worked out, you know, it, it allowed me to fish a lot of different places. And then, you know, if, if, if I was off for a week, if I worked two or three weeks and I was off for five days, you know, I'd either stay behind or, you know, I just go somewhere and fish. And that was, that was kind of, you know, six years of just traveling the country. What was your role at Shimano? Can you explain what that position so entailed? It started, I, I've been... I've been a pro, the contracted pro staffer with the company for over 20 years now in product development. So I've helped, you know, I've helped design some of the products by testing and, and, and giving my input. And at some point I was asked, there was a, a branch of, of marketing that was called experience team. And what it was, was a group, three groups, there was three teams. And, you know, all with trucks and boats. And they kind of went out into the, into the bass fishing world. Uh, you know, you'd shadow the, the Bassmaster Elite Series, um, as well as do trainings into stores. You'd walk into stores and train on product, um, do events, uh, seminars, uh, teach, you know, low-profile bait casting, casting, and just answer, world, uh, answer, answer questions out in the field. Uh, so it's basically, you know, you're just kind of this super pro staff for the company running around the country fishing with some of the best pros in the world. Because, you know, we we say we fish, you know, one of the Bassmaster Elite Series tournaments. We were there. And then after you have a few days, you do some trainings in some of the stores. You take some of the 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 tackle store employees out on the water so that they actually can experience the gear itself um which helps them in turn sell it you know so that was basically part of what what it was 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 just kind of getting the word out there um you know grassroots you know while we're talking about you running around traveling around i have to ask tell us about your jeep 
first of all, do you still have the same one? And yes. give us a, paint the picture for us. Tell us about your setup and, you know, how much time you've spent um, taking the Jeep around to. So it's, uh, it's, it's a Jeep Wrangler JL. So it's a 2020. Um, and it is outfitted uh, kind of, you know, overland style, um, but for fishing, if that makes sense. So there's, there's Molly tactical. It's very tactical. Um, all inside. I mean, there's, there's gotta be, well, if I want there to be, <laughs> there's gotta be, you know, I can, I can probably put 20 grand worth of tackle in here. And how uh, many rods can you, I have to say, I've seen this Jeep firsthand. It's definitely a fisherman's dream. How many rods can you fit in there traveling so at any given time? It fits six inside and then another four on top and then two fly rods. So, so yeah, so 10, 12, so a dozen rods that I can fit comfortable. Like that's without moving anything else, putting five people in here. Can you sleep in there? I can sleep in here. You have a bed? I have a bed. Do you have yep. a stove? I have a stove. We cooked on it. <laughs> we cooked on it. <laughs> <laughs> Natalie, <I'm> explain <laughs> something else about this vehicle because I'm trying to paint a picture in my mind. It was, I just like, it, it stuck out in my mind so much that you explained to me, you know, a little bit about it before we went there. But you know, we had a grand old time. There was a few of us. We we cooked, um, what, Ropa Vieja out of the back of the Jeep? Yeah. Yep. Some fried plantains. I mean, you can, and you've spent, you know, you'll, you'll spend, you know, many overnights in that, I can imagine. And it's pretty much all you need to run around chasing fish. Yeah, I mean, it's 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 awesome because, like I said, I can sleep in it. I have my gear. I usually don't. It's capable of a lot. I usually don't don't travel. I travel with as minimal as possible because it's already had quite a few attempted break-ins. Mm. Um, so if I'm going to lose something, I want to lose very little. Um, and then, I mean, I could just, you know, when I'm down in Florida, I'll pull up to a palm tree along the side of the beach sometimes. I'll fish, I'll come back, I'll tie one end of a of the hammock to the palm tree and the other end to the racks on the Jeep and you know, I sleep outside for the night, you know. It's just it's it's such an awesome you know, Jeeps are obviously it's a brand and people hype it and people don't like some people don't like it, but it it, it gives you that outdoor feeling and it allows you to get to a lot of places you can't get into, you know, with other vehicles you know so you, you talked about your your career with shimano it sounds like to most fishermen or fisherwomen a dream job was it a dream job and did it ever become was there ever a burnout and did it ruin fishing for you to be so submersed in it every single day um it was it was definitely a dream job i i loved it um it was, in, you know, it was an incredible time of my life. And, and I'm so, you know, happy that, that, that I got to do that, you know, for a kid coming out of the city with no dreams whatsoever, except, you know, I, I became a chef. Like that's, that was it. That was my pinnacle of my life was I became a chef. Um, so to be able to do that, what I love, um, and be paid for it was awesome. And then, you know, when the program went away, I ended up in the office um, and that became a little bit harder. I felt like, you know, I, I felt like a bird, you know, I had to fly. And, um, you know, once COVID hit and things, you know, I was let go. I'm, I'm still 
contracted, you know, tester and product development with them. Um, but they don't, they don't sign my paychecks anymore. Um, at first, you know, it was kind of like, ugh. but now it's like, you know, I'm a bird again. Like I can fly, like I can do things and, and, and just go, you know, wherever I want and, and kind of, you know, if, if I want to go punch my card in at nine at Walmart and punch it out at five and then go fishing all night long, I can do that. You know, there's no, there's no extras. So it, it's, 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 it's both, you know, I, I, part of it, I loved it. And part of it, you know, it was, it was, it was kind of weight bearing. So Roy, you've, you know, you've worked in the industry and you're obviously a very accomplished angler in your own right. Um, but I know that you've done a lot too, in terms of giving back and sharing the sport of fishing with people, particularly youth and living in cities. Tell us a little bit about how you got involved in that, what you've done and why that was something that was important to you. Well, at, at one point, um, I think I won. So that program that Massachusetts has uh, for giving out citations for, for a certain size of fish, they had one that they called Master Angler, and that was a combined, you know, who catch the most multi-species in a year. And I had won it a few times, uh, which ended up putting my name in a lot of the magazines and, and articles in newspapers, you know, within Massachusetts as well as a few TV, you know, local TV shows. Um, and a gentleman named John Hoffman, uh, who had just started a program called the Fishing Academy out of Boston, uh, sought me, he saw it and sought me out and see if I wanted to be part of it um, and help him launch it. And, you know, my time there, geez, I think we took like five or 7,000 kids for the first time in our city. Uh, to me, that was, that was huge because, you know, I, I know what it's like. I, I, I've, I've been there, I grew up there and I know times have changed, but it's always the same. Like you see certain things and you feel like this is it. Like I'm never, there's nothing that I else that I can do to get out of here, but there is, there's so much out there. There's so much to see. And there's so much within the city that we walk over, you know, there's, Charles, Jamaica Pond, like these are beautiful places with water that actually have fish. And, you know, I've caught world records out of these waters. Like, it's not like you have to fly God knows where to do something like it's here. It's right here, right in your backyard in your city. So for me to give that back to those kids and point it out. And I mean, a lot of them today even still text me or message me online and thank me or share fishing photos because they're still fishing. So it's awesome. That, that was probably, that's the highlight of my life. You know, I'm curious with, I feel like there's a, a lot of great organizations now doing things with kids and, and even in the outdoors, whether it's, um, you know, camping or, you know, growing vegetable gardens or even like kids in martial arts. What do you think? Obviously you love fishing. We all here love fishing, but what do you think it is about fishing that is so good to share with younger people and for their development? I think it teaches you a lot. It teaches you patience. Um, it teaches you, you know, if you have somebody teaching it to you, it teaches you how to follow direction very well. It also gives you hope, you know, um, and it gives you something else to do besides uh, all those perils in the city, you know, uh, 
if you go fishing rather than hanging out with your friends, you're going to get in less trouble. You can't get in trouble fishing, but you know, it just, it's all those things combined, I think. And, you know, one of the things that fishing I've always said to people is no matter who you are, whether you like it or not, you're always going to remember the first time you ever went fishing. You never forget it ever. Whether your grandfather yeah. took you, whether a neighbor took you, doesn't matter who took you. You're always going to remember that first time. There's doesn't some, go away. There's something unexplainable about a fish too. And I think I, I would add that it's an individual accomplishment to catch a fish. It's you against a fish. So yes, somebody could be teaching you, you know, you can be teaching these kids, but at the end of the whole experience, they're holding the fishing pole they're in charge of trying to present it in a way that they convince a fish to eat it and then they have to reel it in. So that, I don't know, like I've been trying to wrap my head around this too. What is it about a fish that keeps us coming back again and again and again? And, you know, for some kids, like it is, hey, I did this. You know, there's a lot of team sports. There's a lot of other things, but this is me accomplishing something. And I, there's a draw there, then an accomplishment there. Uh, do you growing up, I, I know you've shared your personal story, but what has fishing done for your life? I think it's, 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 it's given me, well, one it's given me more than I ever dreamed of. Like I, I, I never thought like, I, who am I to be on due North? Right? Like that's, that's what, that's what fishing has done for me. It's given me a path to, to walk in and have a voice for something that I never thought that I would, but it's the thing that I enjoy most in this world. And for me, that, that's, that's, that's such a great feeling that something that I can remember my dad teaching me when I was young flourished into something that I live off of that I make a living off of and it doesn't feel like work because it's what I love to do. And that's one of the biggest things fishing has done for me, you know, whatever part of it there is, because we don't all get to do what we love. Right. I mean, work is work no matter what, even in this industry, you know, even when I was having the time of my life, you know, running around the country, it's still work. It's still, it's still daunting. It's still pressures, but if you love to do it, you wake up in the morning and there's no like, I don't feel like doing this today. It's, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do something. Um, so, you know, that's the biggest thing, because I think, you know, society, we tell we tell kids that they can be anything they want in this world. And it's true. They kind of can. But you have to have a certain sense or, or ability to be that person. Right. If you're five feet tall and you can't jump, you're probably not going to be an NBA player, right? You're not, probably not going to be... Unless you're a three-point specialist. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? But is that enough? And I think the thing is that when we set people up to fail, because if I say to you, hey, oh yeah, you can be an NBA star. Try, try, try. Practice, practice. And you practice, but you aren't good enough yet. Then what happens when that dream gets crushed? Where we need to tell people, hey, if you love basketball and this is what you love to do, practice and be the best of it you can be because there's a whole slew of careers within the basketball 
like spectrum, right? You mm-hmm. could be a you don't have to be you could be an awesome player and can't play, but you could be a hell of a coach or uh you know whatever. You know what I mean? There's yep. there's every sport every sport needs something. It's just like fishing. You know, Shimano needs law it has lawyers, it has uh people that you know, create technology. Like there's all these other things, scientists and techs and that makes, puts you in the, in the fishing world without having to be this amazing fisherman, but you still get to do what you love. And I think that a lot of times people don't realize that. And, you know, you set them out and you're like, yeah, you can be an NBA star, but what if he can't, what if he doesn't? And you've traveled your whole life, you put your whole life towards this and it doesn't happen. Then what? You know what I mean? So that for me, fishing has, has, has given me a path where I've been able to do a lot of different things in it um, and, 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 and be happy. I can't complain about my life. I don't want to die, but I can't complain about my life. <laughs> I always feel the energy in your voice. Um, but right. So we only have uh, a couple minutes left, but I do want to ask, you know, kind of along these lines, kind of unrelated, but what advice would you give to either young people or to parents of young people who want to get into fishing, but maybe are limited on either resources or their geographic location or don't know where to start, what would you tell them? Well, one, there's a ton of programs out there now. Like you said, there's, there's a lot, especially in the inner cities and cities, um, you know, look those out. I think even like the why some schools, I mean, high schools now have, you know, bass fishing mm-hmm. as a sport. Right. The, the avenues are a lot more there and the information, you know, online is, is, is overwhelming. Um, if you're a parent who likes to fish and you want to take your, get your kids involved in it, you have to leave your rods at home <laughs> because the worst thing is to take your kids fishing and yell at them every five seconds because they're not doing what you want them to do because that makes you stop from fishing. Uh, you know, that's probably my mm-hmm. biggest advice because I see it all the time. You know, if kid wants to, th- if you take kid fishing and he wants to throw rocks in the water, join him. Join. Because mm-hmm. telling, or, or, you know, at first explain to him why you don't, but you join him. Because once you start to take the way the fun in it, no kid wants to do anything that's not fun. On top of that, you want to make sure they can catch fish. So, you know, sunfish, man, you know, sunnies are great for kids. Um, you know, crappie, anything that bites willing is great for kids because you have to pique their, their, their adventure in, in their minds. Like, you know, if you go and it's a hard day of fishing and you're not catching anything, they're probably not going to want to go back. And it's really hard nowadays with all, you know, technology, it's in your hands. You you don't have to leave your bedroom to find, you know, adventure anymore. So it's, it's, you have to fight against that. So by bringing them outdoors and giving them some to really enjoy, you know, that's going to keep them coming back. And that's, that's it. Like it's all, you take your kids fishing. It's all about them. It's all about them having fun. That's great advice. Um, well, Roy, we are about out of time, but it has been Great talking with you today. How can people who want to see some of these videos, you know, follow along your journey? Where can they uh, follow you? Instagram, website, uh, Instagram, off the hook fishing, all one word. 
um, that is probably the best place right now. That's where I've put most of my time in lately, just because it's easy. It's definitely a good follow. I think and, we can and you're all gonna, attest to that. You're really going to appreciate the tip up that Roy made. Yeah. And the, all that is on his Instagram page. I feel like we could have talked about microfishing for yeah. an hour here easily. I'm, I'm still fascinated by it. Last question for me, right? What's next for you? I don't know. I'm trying to figure that out right now. <laughs> I think we all are. Mm-hmm. And that's okay. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, I think that I've come to terms. I, you know, when I had the website, um, I was kind of my own brand and I'm kind of, kind of leaning towards that way. I just don't know what to do in it. I like to be different, you know? So I don't know. I'm just trying to figure that out right now. Spoken but, like a true fisherman. Yep. <laughs> there's you always, know, there's it, always something to catch mm-hmm. something bigger. And I guess now I'm intrigued about trying to catch something so small that most people would use it for bait. Yeah. It's fun to be honest. There's some, you know, some of these fish are extremely colorful. Um, you know, some of the shiners and darters are just, they're amazing in color. And two, it's just, it's not as easy as people think it is. Like, you know, some of these things, there are, there are species of fish like no other. They, they do their own thing within the river system. So you got to go out and, you know, weed through 20, 30 different species just to catch one. That's, that's, that's a, that's, it's not easy. Is there it's the same sense accomplishment when you hook into a, a three inch darter? Oh my god, my knees shake sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. Those little fish isn't hard is hard sometimes, so you fling them. So yeah. when you hook something that you've been, you know, in a creek for two hours and you fling it, and it that's it. That was your last. It's it breaks your heart. It hurts mm-hmm. just as much as mm-hmm. you know, losing, you know, a fifty inch musky. That's a boat. Like, it's just as painful. Well, you've definitely put a lot of new goals and, uh, you know, exciting things for us to chase down. Hopefully the listeners, too, on all of our radars. I know I'm intrigued to, to give a lot of this a good look. Travis, you going to do some microfishing? I, I mean, I have to watch some more of these videos. But as soon as I watched the first one, I was like, wait a minute. Is What? That's a tip up, and he's a drill with a drill bit on the end instead of an auger. I'm like, what? I mean, it makes sense, but it's cool to see the fish that as you're walking towards the water, they're all swimming away from you, and it's like, hmm, all right, there's something to this. So, well, TBD on my end. How about you? Yeah, uh, I'm in. Get probably wait till open water. But yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if we can dig through like two feet of ice with a one and a half inch drill bit. This but is true. Open water, we'll do it. This is true. Um, well. Well, Roy, thank you again for your time today. It was great chatting and and we'll keep following along your journey and we wish you the best. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Take care. Interesting. Take care. Interesting conversation, Natalie. I like sure. it. You've been meant, you've been talking about your trip to fish with him and just how cool of a guy that, that he is. Mm-hmm. And yeah, there's a lot to his journey that I think we could have unpacked here. I mean, we talked for talked with him for about an hour there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, just just what a fish will do for some mm-hmm. people's lives. I mean, it's cool to look back on his journey and world records and this mission that he's been on. So good find out there. Yeah, well done. For sure. Yep. Um, any announcements that we need to make before we let people go today? I don't know if the bus is full. I guess I, I just assume it is, but it's possible that there might still be a room or a seat open back up on the bus in three weeks now. We'll be fishing Lake of the Woods and 
uh, it's always a great trip. So you can head to donorthoutdoors.tv and, and check the link there. Yeah, and also a little cross-promotion. The Flush is going to be live. The Flush is another show that yeah. this whole network does, a podcast as well. The Flush podcast is going to be live February yep. 17th. It's going to be at the local in downtown Minneapolis. It's at 6 p.m. So if you happen to be a fan of upland bird hunting and all that stuff, or if you're attending Pheasant Fest, Please join us. Have fun. We're going to be playing some games. Yeah, it's it's a show that I'm really excited about. I gave Brandon a little glimpse into it. I'm putting together a, a trivia show, Ooh. and I've got a panel of four recognizable upland bird hunters, and it's part of Pheasant Fest. We did it last year at a bar in Omaha. This year we're doing it because it's in Minneapolis, so we're doing it at the local, and it'll be a, it'll be a lot of fun. Plus, we have a lot of great prizes to give away. I'm going to include the audience into this live show. Natalie? Just, just saying, you might want to I put it on I'm your in list. Town. Yeah, there you go. It'd be February. <laughs> what did we say? February 17th at 6 p.m. at the local. Awesome. There it is. We'll check it out. Well, thank you everyone for tuning in today, and we will see you next episode. Mm-hmm.